Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Anybody know what this is? This is a 1929 Luganda Bible. It was sent to me from England. Somebody in England had it up for sale online. I found it, I bought it, and they shipped it to me. Now it's interesting because in 1914, I believe, we're about to go through the history of this Bible. I believe in 1914, they updated many words. For instance, in this book, it says, uh, for Jesus, it sa- or Jesus Christ, it says, Isa Messiah, instead of Yesu Christo. So in 1914, they changed that. This Bible was printed in 1929, but it still says Isa Messiah. So I don't, I don't know why that is, but um, this, this, it, it appears that this particular Luganda Bible follows the older you know, the 1896 Luganda Bible, the one that came around that time. So you can pass it around, look at it, be very careful with it. This book was made in 1929. <laughs> so be gentle with it. This is one of my babies. It's, I, I have not been able to find another one. So don't harm my Bible or I have to harm you. Ladies first. Let me reach out your hand. <laughs> <laughs> So just take a look at it, pass it around, let, let people get to see it and um, look at some of your favorite verses and see what it used to say versus what it says today. Um, I did find some encouraging news in this study, and I'm, I'm giving you stuff ahead of time like I always do. Um, now, the, the Luganda Bible, I have a digital copy of the 1896 Luganda Bible, and it says it was created from the 1884 revised version Um, but it turns out that as G.L. Pilkington was making this Bible his sister gave gave an account Uh, there's a book written about G.L. Pilkington I found a digital copy of it and um, his sister gives an account of how he made the Bible in that book it's not a scratch and sniff it's just (laughs) you're supposed to look at it (laughs) and uh it, it says that he used 
the revised version, the authorized version, and a French Bible at the, all at the same time to make the Luganda Bible. Now, the reason that's good news, obviously, is because there may be less changes than we thought that we have to make. It may be closer than we, than we anticipated. I hope that's the case. I don't know that that's the case, but I hope. Now, he used the French Bible because the structure of the French language is very similar to the structure of Luganda. So he would read it in the Revised Version and read it in the King James Version, and then he would read it in French. And so he would take what was said in the RV or the KJV, and then he would structure it according to the French Bible. Is that, that helped him to get the, the syntax and the sentence structure together. Because apparently French is laid out in a similar way. As, uh, you know, For instance, if, in English we would say the tree is brown. When Luganda and in French and, and many other languages, they would say brown is the tree. They, they say it backwards. You know, they, we, we put the tree first and then describe it. You put the description first and then tell you what you're describing. <laughs> Which, again, that's, you know, no one consulted me before they made the language, so I'll withhold my opinion about that. But, um, but having something like a French Bible helped him to be able to better structure the sentences. Now, I don't know about this one. We haven't looked at it, but the digital copy is the very early, the 1890, 1896 copy. It has very little punctuation, grammar, same thing the King James translators did. They gave you a 1611 Bible with, with uh, very little grammatical structure. So the, this, this Bible that we have has very little gr- grammatical structure, then that's going to have to be dealt with when we, when we produce, Lord willing, an accurate Luganda Bible. Um, all right, all that out of the way, 1876. Those of you that are interested, it'd be, it'd be neat to go back and take all these ideas we've covered and lay them out side by side by, by the time frame. And you can see all this stuff that's happening in the world in different places at the same time. It just gives you a picture of how God is working in different places through different people all over the world at different times. And you can just kind of lay out a map of how the Bible has just moved around the world. It's, it's, it's neat. That's if you're interested. If you're not, then don't do that. A young missionary set out to serve God in Africa. Anybody guess who we're going to talk about? Alexander, in English we say McKay. Well, in American English. In British English, you say Mackay. But you say that because you're pronouncing, you're pronouncing his name with Luganda vowels. So, in, in, in American English, it'd be McKay. That's how we would pronounce his, his name. I mean, you say Alexander as Alexander. You don't change it, but, <laughs> but you change Mackay. But either way, either way is okay. Neither, neither one is, is wrong. So, he came to be known as God's missionary engineer. He wanted to be both a missionary and an engineer. Now, the Buganda kingdom, historically, has always been considered one of the more advanced African kingdoms. So as, as uh, pioneers and missionaries began traveling through Africa, 
they, they would come into contact with all these different African tribes and different African kingdoms. And when they got to the Buganda kingdom, it was uh, in terms of governmental structure and the development of the people, it, it was considered ahead of the rest of, of many of the others. I, mean, I, I can't say that it was ahead of all of them, but it was definitely uh, England. The, the British that came here noted that this, the society here was a little more advanced than they were used to seeing throughout the rest of Africa. When McKay went to, when he came to the Buganda kingdom, he kind of, he further he furthered that idea because he came and he used his engineering skills to help develop the kingdom, to make it better. He taught them science and he taught them history and he taught them, you know, he taught them many things. And then he showed them how to develop their own, their own area, their own region. And, and I tried to put some infrastructure in place and, and did a lot of things that helped advance the, the Buganda kingdom. Now, he was born into a godly family. His mother would read missionary biographies to him and his siblings when he was young. Now, something else you're going to notice, if you go back and you look at many of the people we've talked about that did something great for God, where did it often start? At home. Their parents read to them. Their parents spent time with them. Their parents challenged them. Their parents pushed them. Their parents didn't just let them figure out what they were going to do. They directed them. This is what you're doing today. You're not going to sit around and be a loser. You're going to do something productive. You're not going to act like you're, you're wild and out of control. You're going to act like you have some sense. And if you don't, then I'm going to, I'm going to help you understand that you better start. <laughs> and so, so th- there, was a, there, was idea, there was an idea in, in these parents, you know, Multiple people we've read about, you know, we talked about John Boy, who's reading the Bible at six years old. Well, his father spent time with him, teaching him how to do that. From one to six. And, and the development of a child starts young. The discipline of a child starts young. If you fail to discipline and train and teach your child and give them proper boundaries from day one, then Every day after that, it's, it's going to become harder and harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And the child's going to get more and more out of control. And then all of a sudden, you're going to have a, a child that you have no control over. And then you're going to decide, maybe I should do something about this. But now you're four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen years down the road. And it's too late. You have to correct all the time you wasted. And you see in so many of these people that they had parents who were invested in their life from a very early age and and structured their life from a very early age and didn't just allow them to waste their time and waste their life doing nothing. And so if you're going to be parents, you need to do the same. If you're a child and your parents not doing that for you, you need to do it yourself. You're going to have to figure it out. It, there's, there's no excuse to be an unruly, supposed child of God. Find out what, God, what is important to God and invest yourself in, in, into accomplishing that. Just give yourself over to it, uh, it to, to the fullest extent. So he was born in a godly family. His father was, highly intelli- was a highly intelligent free church minister. So his dad was a pastor. His father took great interest in his education. 
His father's desire was for McKay to be a pastor, but McKay had a heart for, for missions and mechanics. Now, his dad didn't discourage that. His dad wanted him to be a pastor, but his dad trained him to be a godly young man and to be an intelligent young man. Both are important. Now, if you have to choose one, go with being godly, but there's no reason you should be godly and stupid. <laughs> there's no excuse for that. And we, in, in the, the world of Christianity has bought into this idea that because so many high-level intellectuals are corrupt, that it would just be better for us to abandon any idea of being intelligent at all. And that's, that's a foolish notion. Being stupid is not an, is not an honorary thing. <laughs> it's a choice. Now, everyone has different intellectual abilities, but everyone can be educated. Everyone can be informed. Nobody has to be left behind or left out. But it's a personal choice. It starts with a choice by your parents. And if you're going to be a parent, it's your choice for your children. And then at some point, the choice is handed over to that child, and that child has to pick it up on their own. Until the day my children leave my house, they will be productive and they will be moving in the right direction. And when they leave, they want to go a different direction, that's up to them. But I will train them up in the way they should go, and they're going to go that way every day until they leave my house. And when they leave my house and they decide to do something different, that's up to them. I have no control over that. But I will make certain they have the absolute best start that I can possibly give them. And that when they set out, my daughter, she's going to be a monster for this world to deal with if I have my way. She's going to love God. She's going to be highly intelligent. And, and that's a combination that is very difficult for people. It's, it's, it's like Apollos. He loved the Lord and he was, he was mighty and eloquent in the scriptures. That's difficult to deal with. We like to dabble in the scriptures and be dumb. Well, that's not hard to deal with. People, once they identify your ignorance, they're just like, well, we're dealing with an ignorant fool. Why, do we, why, would, we, why do we care? And, and so you, you don't want to live your life that way. McKay's mother read, read to him about William Carey, Robert Moffat, and David Livingston. Those, those were the three main missionary influences in his life. In fact, before he came to Uganda, uh, uh, he wrote in his journal on the one-year anniversary of the death of David Livingston. He said, David Livingston lived in Africa loving God and his neighbor Go thou and do likewise. And so he closed his journal, sold everything, packed up, and moved to Uganda. And he was the first missionary to, to he was among the first missionaries to come here. Uh, from a young age, he began to try and resolve how to live life as both a missionary and an engineer. Some books I've read said he, he promised God by age three that he was going to be both a missionary and an engineer. Other books say by, by age 10, he had made this decision. And so he spent his entire life, either from three years old or 10 years old, training to be a, an engineer and a missionary. He didn't just wait around and say, you know, well, what does God want me to do? God has told you plenty of what he wants you to do in the word of God. Just do it. People don't serve God and they blame God for their lack of service. They say, well, God hasn't called me to do anything. Yes, he has. It's laid out unbelievably clear in the word of God. And so if you're not participating, that's your choice. Don't blame God. But if you want to serve God, 
and you want to find a meaningful way to do it, figure out what you're going to do and, and set your mind and your heart to do it. From, from about 10 years old, he trained himself daily. When kids are out playing, he was with the blacksmiths learning how to work metal. Kids are out playing. He's at the woodworking shop learning how to learning how how to work wood. Other kids are out playing and he's uh, they're building a new church building for the for the uh, Church of England. And he's over there helping the Masons lay bricks just so he can learn how it how it works, how do structures come together? How do you work metal? How do you work wood? How do you do all of this? And so he just he just applied himself to it and he set out to do it Every day, he didn't waste his time playing. I mean, what what is playing going to benefit anybody? It doesn't. And say, well, don't you think your child should have some time to play? No. <laughs> she need she she has she is she is in a present evil world that is going to hate everything she believes by the time she's eighteen years old. She needs to be learning. She needs to be growing. She needs, to, she needs to understand how to approach this world from a godly perspective. And it's my responsibility to teach her that and to prepare her to be able to deal with this world. Do you know what the men of this world will do to a young blonde girl? It's horrible. And if she's not prepared to be able to deal with the men of this world and to deal with the, the psychotic women of this world, then she's going to be eaten up and spit out. But at least she got to play. <laughs> No, I want her mentally tough, I want her physically strong, and I want her spiritually strong so that she can handle what's going to be coming her way. Now, she will not be a loud, contentious, domineering woman. That's just as ungodly. But she will be strong and she will be godly if I, if I have my way. And so McKay's parents are, are really shaping his mind to be that kind of man And um, in 1867, his family moved to Edinburgh, and there he thoroughly studied engineering, and he continued to study and grow as a Christian. He he never lost sight of his relationship with his father and and what his father taught him as a pastor. His father would also, some of the books I've read about him, his father would would take him out, you know, for for science class, and they would find an insect and just watch it, and he'd learn about it, and they'd, you know, just see what it does, where it goes. Or they'd find an animal and they'd watch it and they'd learn how to feed it. They'd learn, you know, whatever, whatever you could learn from just just watching it and examining it and, and, and seeing what it does. His dad just spent quality time with him in that way, teaching him, letting him see the world around him and, and gaining a good understanding of it. In 1873, and we're moving quick, we're talking about large chunks of his life at, at, at one time. Uh, I'm not giving you the fine details. There are lots of books about him. Uh, his sister wrote probably one of the best ones, and, uh, if, and, and so you should try and read it if you can. It's Ugandan history, and um, you should learn about what, what happened there because it was good and it was very bad. And we're going to talk about some of it briefly. Um, 1873, he moved to Germany, and uh, he, he became an apprentice there. And, uh, but at that time, he began thinking through the idea of moving to Africa as both a missionary and an engineer. Now, when he moved to Germany, he was still fairly young. I want to say he was between 18 and 20. Uh, it's not in my notes, and, and uh, I don't remember exactly. But he was very young, and he did so well as an apprentice 
they the company he was an apprenticing for in Germany offered him to be a partner. They said, which means they're giving him part of the business if he'll come on and be, be a business owner and an engineer for them. That's how good he was at being an engineer. At a very young age, they said, we want you to stay here. We will give you part of the business if you come work with us and stay here. And in his mind, he said, if they are offering me that, it means I have accomplished becoming an engineer. It's time to start thinking about going to Africa. Because his point was not to be an engineer and to make a bunch of money and do nothing for God. His point, his, his goal was to be a missionary and an engineer and find some way for those two to work together somewhere, somehow. And so when they made him this offer in his mind, he said, well, I, I've accomplished it. I'm an engineer now. I'm, I'm, I'm where I need to be. I've been training to be a godly young man. I've been training to serve God. I've been training to be an engineer. And now we're reaching a point where, where it's time to put those two to work. We're no longer in the training phase. It's time to move into to serving. Um, he began speaking with certain missionary societies who at this time began to realize the value of medical training alongside the gospel. And, and it's still a common thing today. You have what's called uh, medical missions. Now, we, our approach to missions is a little more fundamental when you start adding names to missions, you're, you're getting a little outside the realm of what we would be comfortable with. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for someone to be a medical missionary. I mean, praise the Lord. You have those skills, you have those talents, and you can win souls to Christ, then go do it. But we are more interested in church planting. We want to train Ugandan men to plant churches. And we want to equip and prepare Ugandan men to be able to go out and tell people about Jesus Christ and, and do just the missions part without some title in front of it. Missionaries. And so at this point in time, they realize we can send a medical doctor who is both a medical doctor and a missionary into these villages in Africa and he can help the people medically and at the same time preach the gospel to them. That's not a bad thing. It's just not quite our purview. That's just not quite our interest. And uh, now Brother Keith works with a medical team who comes here every so often. Uh, last time they were here, they saw 500 plus people and, and one or 200 people made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. That's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. And they had, they had people who have the talents and the skills and the training to be able to do that kind of stuff. And, uh, but then they pack their stuff up and they leave. So, you know, what's going to happen with all those people? Who's going to train them? Who's going to help them? And, and we try to get their information. We try to follow up with them and, and get them into church. But it doesn't always happen. And so, and so the point is, he's thinking now, if we can have medical missions, why can't we have, why can't I be an engineer and a missionary? And, and he wants to try and combine those two together. So McKay argued that engineering could assist the propagation of the gospel in the same way. And he began telling these missionary societies, I can take my skills and I can go somewhere like Africa and it'll be a benefit to, to preaching the gospel. And um, eventually they, they agreed. Uh, soon he would volunteer to work with the Church Missionary Society. And uh, if you can ever get your hands on the, the journals and the articles and magazines that these, missionary, these various missionary societies in England 
put out. Um, you can find them online. Oftentimes, it's, it's just a free PDF to download. Um, it's just it's full of historic events that happened all over the world in the name of missions. Because remember that during this time, you know, Moffat went into Africa in the late 1700s on the southern tip and into South Africa. He was there. I believe it was Moffat who was there for for 20 years before he finally took his first furlough. <laughs> and he goes back to England and he gives a speech about how missionaries need to go to Africa. And everybody was trying to get into China at the time. But China had suddenly closed and, and, and uh, British missionaries couldn't, couldn't go to China. And so they're all waiting for China to open. And he goes back and he gives a speech and, he, and, he's, and he's telling them, why are you waiting for a closed country to open when you have a wide open continent that that needs the gospel. And in the crowd of one of those speeches was a young man who sat and listened, who had been waiting and waiting to get into China. And every time he tried to go, he was hindered. China was closed. You couldn't go. He had to wait. And he promised God he was going to be a missionary. So he was trying to wait it out. And when he heard this speech, he changed his mind. He said, I'm going to go to Africa. And that man was David Livingston. And so he ended up coming to David to, to Africa and making his way all the way up into the interior of Africa. And, um, and because of him, H.M. Stanley ended up coming to Uganda. Livingston didn't make it quite as far as Uganda, but H.M. Stanley found Livingston basically on his deathbed. And uh, from there, he continued up into the interior of Africa and uh, made it up into Uganda and, and went on from there. So... Uh, all, all this is this is all African history, and it often gets painted the wrong way. And so you, it, it'd be good for you to get your hands on their material and read what they had to say about it, uh, because the world right now is trying to reframe. The world's trying to make it sound like every white man who ever existed was evil and is trying to kill everybody who's black and brown, and it's just not true. And that doesn't that doesn't uh, excuse the things that European countries did throughout Africa, because some of them were horrendous. And but that also doesn't you've got to wait. You have to you have to get both sides of the story and you have to weigh out the good and the bad. And, And there, you know, it's not like African nations were these sweet, innocent people just hanging out here, loving each other. They were slaughtering each other. They were killing each other. And so it only became a problem when a white man came in and did it. <laughs> when you're doing it to each other, everybody was like, oh, it's just so peaceful here. And everybody just loved each other. That's not, that's not true at all. And um, that, that's, that's human nature. It doesn't matter if you have white skin or black skin. You have human nature. You're, you, you have Adam's sin in your body. And the wages of sin is death. That's what it's going to bring about. It doesn't matter who, who, who it is. It's the same thing in America. They're like, oh, the poor Indians. Those people were slaughtering each other before the Europeans came in and slaughtered them. <laughs> and so what you have is just people killing people because they want to take what you have. And, and so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter to me what your skin color is when you do it. <laughs> I don't understand how that's a, how that's a factor. Who cares if your skin is white or black when you're killing people or enslaving people? And, and that, it's another funny thing. I mean, none, none of this is, has to do with our lesson, but it's just you're going to it's, it's going to start coming to your doorstep. So you might as well hear it here first. 
the, the idea of slavery is often only taught or only talked about in the context of Africans being enslaved. But do you know where the word slave came from? The word slave came from the Slavic people in Europe, where white people were enslaving white people. And so the word slave came from the Slavic people being enslaved. So the, the, the continent of Africa was not the only continent in the world to ever be subject to slavery. Everybody went through it. It's just, it's just that the continent of Africa was probably the most recent. And so it's, it's, it's real close into our, in our memory. Um, I don't want to be a slave anywhere. I don't want to have slaves. <laughs> like, I don't understand the mentality. Like if I had slaves, what, what could I get accomplished? Um, that's just weird. <laughs> Why would you want a slave? Like I, I, I don't get it. But I also don't have a huge plantation and, and, and my, my, all my money comes from that plantation. And if I could get free labor, I could really increase my profits. So um, that, that's really what it all boils down to. Anyways, today you have, you have the sex trade, human trafficking. If you, if you look at pornography at any time, you're helping, you are assisting men across the world who kidnap children and force them to perform sexual acts on camera so that weirdos can sit and watch it on a computer. And when you, when you watch it, when you buy it, when you, when you give it any attention, you're, you're helping to increase the demand. And if you increase the demand, that means they got to go kidnap more children and come and force them into, into, into that same situation. So you think you're watching two consensual adults do disgusting things on camera, which I have no idea why people would sit and watch that. But you're not. You're watching a child who's being forced to do horrendous things and if they don't do it, they'll be beaten off camera. Maybe even killed and thrown out the window. If you're not going to do what they want, then they'll just put you to death and move on and kidnap somebody else. So slavery still exists in full force today. It's just, it's just not quite in the same fashion that we're used to. And, and all that from Alexander McKay. All right, so... Soon he would volunteer with the, mission, the church missionary society who was seeking men to serve God in, in a country called Uganda. Actually, at that time, it was probably Buganda. In 1876, the church missionary society completed their meeting and plans for sending the first group to Uganda. So that's where we are here. They had this big meeting. They selected, I believe it was about 10 men, and, uh, and prepared them to, to, to go And uh, in that meeting, McKay announced to the men present, it is sure that within six months, one of us will die. (laughs) And he said, please do not be cast down at the news, but rather send someone to replace the fallen. Um, About two years into his time there, there were two men left. It was just... You think malaria is bad now? You think it's hard to survive now? Try it in 1876 in Africa. There, there, there are no laws. There are no European, there's no European influence. It's just, it's just tribal warfare 
and disease. It was just hard. There were no stores. There was, there, there was absolutely everything you have now that all comes like you, you go to the market and you buy posho. <laughs> none, none of that existed. You, you, you survive on your own. That's it. You don't, you don't take shillings and go down and buy something. You better grow it or kill it or hunt it or kill your neighbor and take it from them. Those were your only options. And, and that was the reality of Africa at that time. And that has been the reality of nearly every continent at some time. And, and as, as things progress, Lord willing, uh, it's interesting. The world thinks we're becoming more civilized. But God said, evil men and seducers shall wax, wax worse and worse. So they may dress nicer. <laughs> I mean, Putin dresses pretty nice. He just killed thousands of people. For what? He's not even going to get what he wanted. He thought he was going to walk in and take Ukraine. And that's not going to happen now. It was such a bad move, and he was so incapable of finishing the job, that now it's going to be a stalemate. He's either going to have to leave, fire a nuke, or they're going to have to settle that he can have a little piece of territory on the border of Russia and Ukraine. Those are his options at this point. If he fires a nuke, then... NATO is going to, going to, I mean, it, that would be a far worse move than, than the other two options. He's getting to a point where he's going to have to tuck his tail and go home and, and lick his wounds because he made a big mistake. Um, but that's, it's, it's no different. Just because you can do it on television with a suit and tie on and, and you're not the one going out and slaughtering your neighbor, you're just hitting buttons and sending missiles over, it's, it's no different than than you know, this tribe showing up with bows and arrows and, and spears and slaughtering people. It's just a little more face-to-face over here, and over here it's long distance. So, so it's, it's no different. Um, two years into his service in Uganda, he writes back that eight men left England, only two remain. <laughs> in the end, Alexander McKay was the last man standing. And he served God 14 years in Buganda. McKay and his men landed in Zanzibar. All right, so if you have, you have Africa, this is, that's Africa. You have Uganda here, there's Lake Victoria. And so Kenya is here, Rwanda is right there on the little corner down there. And then you have Tanzania, which is huge. And over here you have Zanzibar. This is where they landed, and then they had to make the hike to Lake Victoria. But it wasn't just a hike. It's not like it was open fields. They had to cut through jungle. They had to cut, I mean, they had, they had to make a path and make a way to, to get there. It was a rough, rough route. <clears throat> um, they landed in Zanzibar, and they traveled through African wilderness on foot for 800 miles to the southern tip of Lake Victoria. He accomplished this task while carrying a boat, a steamboat, not like a fishing boat, a steamboat. So this was a massive, I mean, there was like two, there was like some, some of the books said there's, there might have been about 200 people that are helping him carry all the stuff they need and make their way to to the southern 
tip of uh, Victoria. Um, he also created several wagon paths along the way. This would assist future missionaries to make their way to Uganda through Tanzania. Unfortunately, it also helped the Roman Catholics to come in. And uh, they ended up causing a lot of trouble for him. So he creates this, this wagon path from the coast all the way to, to the tip, southern tip of Lake Victoria. And so it basically becomes a road where people who want to travel can, can easily travel all the way from the coast to 800 miles in a day where in a day in Africa where there, there are no roads. Why do you need a road? You know, Africans walk. They don't have wagons. They don't have they don't have anything that, that moves on wheels at this time. They they hike everywhere they go. They don't, what, what's a road? You still see today if you go you go out in the village and you'll just see this little path where everybody walks you know, from from place to place out in the middle of, of, of nowhere. As they might take a motorcycle, a peachy, you know, through the road, but um, or through the little path. But other than that, they, they walk. And uh, it's still still like that today. So it was good that he was able to do that because he was able to get supplies and all sorts of things were able to come through. But the problem is people he didn't want there also came through. So it ended up causing problems for him in the end. Uh, when McKay reached Lake Victoria, it took two months to assemble the boat and then sailed across Lake Victoria and landed in Uganda in 18, 1878. So we're only two years in, which is not bad considering all he had to do you know, to get there. Upon arrival, he was met by King Mtesa, who promised him friendship, and he said he promised not to go to war with England. That was nice of him. He promised not to go to war with the most powerful military in the world at that time, who would have come in and squashed him like, like it was nothing if they wanted to. Um, but, you know, that was kind of him. That was, that was good. Um, he promised not to go to war with England. McKay immediately began teaching science and the Bible. He learned Swahili before moving to Africa, and it was well understood in the Buganda kingdom at that time. He began teaching the Bible from the Swahili Bible. There was a, at least a uh, partially formed Swahili Bible, and it was the only way he could communicate with, with, with the Buganda people at the time. Uh, he didn't yet know how to speak Luganda, but they understood enough Swahili that they could communicate and, and they could get things done. And, uh, and he, knew, he apparently knew Swahili. He learned it. Um, Arab traders would frequently, frequently show up, and their intent was to trade cloth gun, and guns for slaves. Now, everybody likes to talk about what, what the white men did, but nobody wants to talk about what the Arabs did. <laughs> and... I'm not excusing the slave trade. I don't care who did it. In fact, it would, it would be, historically, it would be Christians who caused enough trouble that the slave trade came to an end. And to which some people will say, well, didn't Christians participate? Some did. And they were wrong. But if it wasn't for Christianity, the slave trade would be alive and well and, and thriving right now. But it, it, it was white Christians who said, this is ungodly and it needs to stop. Now, when Europe stopped, the Arabs never stopped. 
they continued. It was only the, the wet, what became known, known as the Western world who got rid of slavery. Even today, you, you might as well tell your family, your cousins, your friends, your brothers, your sisters, that invitation to move to Saudi Arabia and work, you better not. That's, that's an open invitation to slavery. I, I lived in Saudi Arabia for three and a half years. I've, I've lived in Dubai. I lived in Egypt. I lived in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. I've, I've been all over the Middle East. And, and Muslims take Filipinos, Africans, Indonesians, um, it, any third world country who is looking to make money and they have to leave their country and go work in, 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 a, in a Muslim country like an Arab Muslim country predominantly, you end, up in, you end up in slavery. Now, it might turn out to be the best job you ever had. That could happen. But I can't tell you the number of people that we met when they got there, the, the, the Muslim that they were going to work for took their passport. And they're not giving it back. We, I know a Filipino man who won a court case he hadn't been paid in 14 years. They just happened to get enough attention on this court case that they had to do something. And, and you might say, well, I'll just, I'll just go to the police. Well, the chief, whoever, whoever, is, whoever the police officer is, is part of the same tribe as the man that took your passport. He's going to tell you, you better go home and shut your mouth before we, before we do something terrible to you. And they do terrible things to these people. There was a woman from Sri Lanka, one of the most famous cases. They told her she had to be awake and working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when she didn't do it, they would abuse her. And one of the things they did is they took her and they took hot nails and they would nail it into her joints. All over her body. Someone finally helped her sneak out of the country they got home and they had to remove hundreds of nails from her body. So it might be tough to find a job here. It might be tough to find a good paying job here. But you should probably thank God you're not living through that. And just learn how to live within the means that you have and, and do the best you can with it and let God bless what you've got. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Sometimes it's evil. <laughs> Now, I don't hear a single anti-slavery activist saying anything about what's going on in Saudi Arabia. And that's happening on a large scale in that country. And they don't have a word to say about it. But if they found a white man doing that, oh, the whole world would be ready to, ready to execute him. Do you see how twisted that thinking is? So, so you, you help me understand what skin color... Is it acceptable to have and enslave other people? <laughs> yeah. But, but we're moving in a direction in all, across the world where they are now justifying the abuse of white people in, in, the, hopes of ending, in the hopes of ending racism. So you're teaching people to be racist against a race of people in the hopes of getting rid of racism. That makes no sense whatsoever, but it's coming your way. So you better be prepared for it. 
It's, it's going to come through the feminism. It's going to come through homosexuality. It's going to come through, it's going to come through your universities. That's, that's who's going to teach it. They're going to tell you that these things... It, I, I, I read articles all the time in, in Ugandan newspapers. And I, I read how Ugandan men are just foolishly and, and unintelligently following the, the writings of people in the world. When I, when I read their articles and I start seeing what it says, it's like, you, you, got, you didn't get this in Uganda. You got this from reading CNN. You got this from reading MSNBC. You got this from reading people outside the country who have influenced you to come into your own country and write articles to influence your people to follow that ridiculousness. And it's just going to get, it's going to intensify and intensify and intensify. And the pressure is going to come down on you to abandon the Bible and to follow along with those things. Well, we're not doing it in America and I hope you're not going to do it here. The reason I keep mentioning these things, because we're talking about this time period when the slave trade is, is at its fullest and, and you're not even allowed to talk about, so, about someone like Alexander McKay, who a white man who came to Africa he probably was trying to just steal everything you have. <laughs> no, he sacrificed his life to bring you the gospel. He got nothing out of being here. In fact, his life was in great danger because the king eventually turned against him and he stayed anyways. And at a certain point, they wouldn't even let him leave without permission. If he wanted to go across Lake Victoria to see another missionary, he had to get permission and they often sent someone with him to make sure he came back. Yeah. And he stayed because he loved the people here and wanted to wanted to help help them come to know Jesus Christ. And the world is going to make that man appear to be evil. And so you're going to have to prepare your minds to to rise above that garbage. McKay immediately began teaching science and the Bible. He learned Swahili. He began teaching from the Swahili Bible. Arab traders came in. They wanted to trade cloth and guns for slaves and McKay would vehemently oppose them in these matters. Who knows what that means? It means he was vicious about it. When the Muslims came in, and this is, this is another part of this history that no one likes to tell. Do you know where most of the slaves, how most of the slaves were produced? Africans would go in, kidnap people, bring them to, to Arabs and, and, and uh, Europeans and sell them into slavery. So your tribe, your tribe or your kingdom can make a lot of money by kidnapping other Africans and bringing them and selling them into slavery. Well, these Arabs show up and start talking to the king saying, you know, we need, we need some slaves. We can bring you guns. We can bring you cloth. We can bring you lots of good stuff. And McKay jumped in the middle of it and said, you better go somewhere else. And, and he, he, he fought it so harshly that, that they ended up not going along with it. Now, the trouble began to be made manifest when the king began weighing the options between religions. So, in Tessa, before, before Stanley showed up, he was heavily, in, heavily influenced by Islam. <clears throat> now, he was not Islamic, but the Muslims were coming in and, and building a, a strong relationship with him. He was trading with them. Uh, he began dressing like them. So, a lot of the Ugandan dress that, that uh, looks like the Arab world, this is when it was introduced. At this time, when they're coming in and making these deals with, with King Mtesa. And then um, Stanley came in, H.M. Stanley. 
And he made this deal with the king that if you'll get rid of Islam, if you'll keep them out, I can bring people from England and uh, they'll come here and they'll, they'll teach your people. They'll, they'll, they'll teach them about Jesus. They'll teach them science. They'll teach them math. They'll teach them all these things that will help build your country up. And he said, okay, no problem. He said, if you, if you bring them, we'll do it. Well, at a certain point, he began weighing his options. <laughs> I said, which one do I want, really want to stay here? And um, the king said, if I become a Christian, I can only have one wife. <laughs> And that's a problem. But if I become a Muslim, they won't let me eat pork. I'm limited in the meat I can eat. And so, <laughs> I mean, that, imagine that. It's like, do I want to be stuck with one wife? Or do I want to, be, do I want to remove pork? Which one? You know, it's, <laughs> that was his thinking. Um, the king had become known for playing sides. He often stirred up trouble by playing manipulative games. And uh, he, he had, historically, he became very well known as being a manipulator. He would go stir up trouble behind the scenes and then sit and watch the, the fallout. And, and he enjoyed that kind of thing. McKay also noted in his diary that the king would send his armies to other villages where they would murder and steal, often bringing women and children home as their reward. That's peaceful, wonderful Africa before the, the, the mean Europeans came and mistreated them. McKay said some of these atrocities were worse than the slave trade had ever reached. If you read about how the interactions between African tribes, it is the height of evil. It is horrible. What they would do to women, what they do to other, other, other tribes, and racism is... Stronger in Africa than it is anywhere I've ever been in the world. <laughs> Rwanda in 1994 is a good example. It's, it's just, you, Africans treat each other horribly. Even Ugandans. The way you treat each other, especially if you're from another tribe, but even if you're not. As we watch the interaction between Ugandans with Ugandans, it's like, do you hate each other? I mean, what, what is wrong here? Why would you treat each other like that? I mean, this is your country. And uh, there's, just, there's just no unity. It's very disjointed. Even now, anything happens in the country, everybody blames the government. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> Muslims bomb Kampala and put out a video saying, we bombed your town. And Ugandans say, Museveni did it. <laughs> it's like, what? You have them saying, we did this, and they're getting mad. They're like, no, he didn't do it. I did it. And Ugandans are like, I think the government was behind it. It's like, okay. You're, you're, there's no unity at all. And, and, and to some extent, there's some reason for There's good reason for that. And to some, some extent, there's not. So, yeah, well, that's Uganda. <laughs> that's, I, don't, I don't see any of the other regions of Uganda greatly united. I mean, it's, I, I don't, if you know of one, tell me about it. I'd love to learn about them. But I, I've not seen this great unity in the country that, that's going to bring everybody together. And what did Jesus Christ say about that? Anybody remember? But that, that's, that's a different topic. But he said, if your house is divided, it's going to fall. 
If there, if there's no basic unity, how can this country stay together and, and prosper and do well? So um, we have something we can form that unity around, the word of God. And that's what will cause your country to, to prosper. Anyways, all right. So Mtesa developed an illness and turned to witch doctors for help. And why wouldn't he? The witch doctors recommended that he sacrifice as many humans as possible in order to recover. That's the medical solution of a witch, witch doctor. So the next time I hear about you taking your child to the village to get help, it's going to be hard for me to not kick you in the face. <laughs> I'm going to take him to the village doctor. Why? Why won't you take him to a medical doctor in town? You know what, Jesus, and this is another thing. People are, people are you know, well, the medical doctor is going to try to kill him. Really? And the, and the witch doctor in the village has his best interest in mind? Really? Jesus said, they which are sick need the physician. Take them to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. So in response, uh, he ordered that people be sacrificed on a large scale and no one was safe. So his men began hiding around the Buganda kingdom. And as you come you know, walking through the woods or walking through the, the jungle, they jump out and they'd kill you in order to sacrifice you so the king can get better. Well, he died in 1884 of this sickness. So apparently it didn't work out too well. Now think about that. The king could just order that you need to go kill people so that I can live. And not only did he die, but people, people who had nothing to do with it had to die in the hopes that this witch doctor is correct and he could live. The new king was a 17-year-old young man named Mwanga. Anybody know him? Yeah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. King Mwanga began to brutally murder anyone who made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just put them to death. I mean, it was, it was, it was evil. It was brutal. It was almost as bad as the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> and yet converts would come to McKay to be baptized in secret. And then after they were baptized, so if you, I mean, you read the book, it is heartbreaking. McKay was so discouraged, he, he thought... Nobody's going to hear anything I have to say now. This king began killing all these Christians. He's like, if, if he's killing all these Christians, nobody's going to care what I have to say. Nobody's going to hear about Jesus. And they'd come knocking on his door in the middle of the night and say, I trusted in Jesus Christ. Would you baptize me? So he would take them into the water. He would baptize them. And they would go straight to the king's court and begin preaching the gospel openly, knowing what was going to happen to them. The king was so evil and corrupt, McKay began writing home requesting assistance. He noted that he could not see how European intervention could, not be, could, could be avoided. He's like, you're going to have to bring an army in here. This guy is a psychopath. And he's the king. He is brutally, he is viciously murdering his own people. Somebody's going to have to come in and stop him. So... McKay eventually died in 1890, but not before moving in the direction of a translation of the Luganda Bible. 
1879, the Lord's Prayer was translated. All right, so now we get into that. That's just some some rough background or some quick historical background. Uh, now we're going to get into the translation work that was done on the Luganda Bible. So that was in in uh, in 1879. Yeah, the Lord's Prayer was translated. All right, so that's the Lord's Prayer, and then 1880. He began working on uh, the book of Matthew. He began working on the book of Matthew, and along with him was a man named uh, Samwidi Mukasa. And I'm sure I'm saying his name exactly right. So he would work with him on the translation work. Now this, um, by 1890, so we're going to jump forward. To 1890, a man named G. L. Pilkington came to Uganda. And along with him was a man named Henry Wright Duta. But Pilkington is the man we're most concerned with. And uh, he began a full translation of the Bible in Luganda. He finished his work in 1896. And I'm throwing a lot of dates out. We're going back and forth, but just just stay with me. If you have questions, just let me know. Um, now, in 1879, back over to McKay, 1879, he brought a printing press into Uganda. Now, how many African kingdoms at that time do you think had a printing press? Not many. And this would be, I'm sure, I don't know what, what printing press it was, but I'm sure it was a mechanical one, not an electrical one. It was an actual press. He, in fact, he had to carve all the, um, all the figures to, to print. So anything that he wanted to print, he had to carve all the, all the uh, letters and, and punctuation, and then, and then he, you have to press it into the paper. So that's, that's what they had at that time. And he brought it from Zanzibar. So <laughs> that 800-mile trek, it goes back to Zanzibar, and he brings a printing press 800 miles across and then puts it on a boat and takes it across Lake Victoria to, to Uganda. That's, that's pretty impressive. Today, people complain and cry about, you know, trucks not running. <laughs> and this man carried a steamboat 800 miles across Africa with no roads and then brought a printing press <laughs> all the way from Zanzibar to Uganda. That's, that's pretty impressive. So he translated Pilkington. Uh, he began where McKay left off. And so Matthew was, was done, and so he started with, with Mark and then Luke and then John. And he just progressed through the New Testament um, after that, he just kept kept going. Um, he finished the New Testament and revised the whole while back in England. Uh, so at some point, he left Uganda. He took all his notes and the work that he had done so far with him back to England. And, and he finished the Bible in England and then brought it back in 1897. But we'll, we'll get to all those dates in just a second. Um, 
Before leaving Uganda, he made numerous notes regarding the books that were not yet complete. He began working daily and tirelessly to complete the unfinished books. He used both the revised version as well as the authorized version, and he frequently referenced a French version. Now, that is very important to me. Uh, So as he's doing the work, he's using the revised version, the authorized version, and then some French version. It doesn't say which one, but the notes did say that French version was basically used for sentence structure. And um, so he's referring to these two to, to... and, and this is another thing. It, I've never read of another man who went from the English Bible to another language. Everybody tries to say, no, you have to go back to the originals. Well, there are no originals. So which ones do you want me to go back to? And, and so what they mean is you need the Textus Receptus and you need the Masoretic Text. And if you, you know, if you don't go from those two, then it's not right. Well, again, that makes no sense. I, I, I don't know what your proof is for that. Because... The authorized version is the Masoretic text, and it is the Textus Receptus. So if I can get into Luganda, what that says, it's the same thing. It's no different. And, and until they can demonstrate to me or sell me on the idea that I have to learn the Greek and the Hebrew and go all the way back there before I can have an accurate Bible in Luganda, and, and you're not going to sell me on that idea, I mean, you better have some pretty some pretty uh, devastating evidence. Um, otherwise, if the, the English, what the King James Bible says, if we can get it to say the exact same thing in Luganda, in Lugandan sentence structure, and, and in a way that is, that is proper for Lugandans to read, then you have an accurate copy of the Word of God. And I'm okay with that. So he, so he referenced those Bibles, and, and this is also important because This means the authorized version may have had more influence than I originally thought on the Luganda Bible. Because up until reading this book put out uh, specifically about G.L. Pilkington, um, my understanding was he only used the revised version. And even if you you look at the 1896 uh, copy, they call it the uh, Luganda 10 Bible, I believe is what what it was called. And when you open it up, it says that it was translated from the 1884 Revised Version. That's what it says in the front page. But it turns out he used all three of these. So, uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. I hope that ends up being very good news. His sister reports that Proverbs was the book that was translated with the greatest ease. And this is why. Pilkington says that, uh, that Proverbs is written in a format that resembles the Luganda manner of speech. So something about the structure of the book of Proverbs and the way that those Proverbs are written, he says it, 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 helped, it matches well with the Luganda language. And so he, he apparently translated that book very easily. Each time a book was completed, it was printed, then reviewed and carefully revised, then printed again, then reviewed, then revised and printed again until until he, he had it as best he could get it. Um, and so that, that's good to know. The Old and New Testament were complete in 1896. And then in 1897, he went back to Uganda. He goes back to Uganda with the complete Bible. He 
He also wrote some hymns and pamphlets in Luganda. Somebody tell me if you know what this means. Does that mean anything to anybody here? Uh, Let me make sure. Yeah. Yep. He who seeketh findeth. Now, you probably would write it differently today, right? It would have more. You probably have some double vowels or some double consonants in there that they didn't they didn't do that back then. So he wrote a pamphlet called Anonya Alaba, which means he who seeketh findeth. This pamphlet dealt with the apostate teachings of the Catholic Church. Now we're going to go through the changes that were made to the Luganda Bible over time. In 1899, a revised edition of the 1896 Luganda Bible was published in London. The revision committee consisted of H.W. Duta Kitakuli. Ki, not Chi. Ham Mukasa. Natanieli. Mudeka, Tamasi Senfuma, and Bartolomeo Musoke. The team assisted by, was assisted by Jane E. Chadwick of the Church Missionary Society. Now, this will be the Bible we use, uh, and Lord willing, uh, used to create an accurate Bible in Uganda. So I believe maybe the one that we have in digital form is the 1899 but we have one of these, either 1899 or 1896. And then the one I have, it was printed in 1929, but it, it, it doesn't have the 1914 changes in it. So I'm guessing it's, it's the text from 1899 or 1896, but it, it, is, uh, it doesn't have the 1914 corrections um, so after 1899, several more changes were made. And from, from about 19, from 1968 forward, your Bible just turned to total, total not goodness. Let me try to be nice. In 1914, a corrected edition of the New Testament was completed in large print. And um, this is where they changed Isa Masiya. It was altered to say Yesu Christo. So before that, so if you look in that Bible, in this Bible, it says Isa Masia. It doesn't say Yesu Christo. And so that's going to be the Swahili influence in the Luganda Bible. And even 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 when we made, when we produce the, the 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 Bible that we intend to put together, it's probably going to have some Swahili influence. As uh, uh, Brother Michael and I were looking the other day uh, in the Luganda Bible, you have no way. In Luganda, to distinguish between world and earth. So, what's the word for world in Luganda? What's the word for earth in Luganda? Yeah, that's a problem. They're not the same thing in the Bible. Now, in Swahili, they have a they have two different words, and they distinguish very clearly between the world and the earth. Yes, and for world. Yes. So we're going to have three, three Bibles there. We're going to have our, the, the Luganda Bible, the 1899 or 96, whichever one that we have in digital form. We're going to have Matt Stensis Runyakorne Bible and or the New Testament. I, don't, I think he's only finished the New Testament, right? Yes. Right. So 
We will have that one, and then we will have the best Swahili Bible I can get my hands on. And where Luganda does not have a proper word, we're going to have to draw from those Bibles to put into the Luganda Bible, and then we'll have to explain in the back what we did, or, or in the margins, or the footnotes, or whatever, just like they did with the, the older Bibles. And nobody should have a problem with that, because you already steal words from each other. You don't say kitabazi, you say chitabazi, which is, <laughs> you, 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 no, it's not. So, <laughs> so you, you already borrow from the languages around you, which is just fine, but we're going to have to do that in order to properly and accurately get you a Bible. Like, Luganda speakers had this idea that we're going we're to take all the words they have in their head and make a Bible for them. <laughs> And that's not going to happen. It'll be an accurate Bible that will be 98% Luganda, Lord willing. But it's going to have to draw from some other, other languages in order to, get, to make it right. So in 1914, they updated the New Testament to say Yesu Christo. In 1947, a standard Luganda orthography was instituted and officially accepted by the government of Buganda and the protectorate government. The commission was led by Professor A.N. Tucker and Mr. E.K.K. Sempibwa. He was one of the commissioners. All right, so I don't know what changes they made in 1947. It sounds like they just changed the orthography, which I, I, I like uh, the way this Bible is laid out. Uh, actually, I really like the way that the, the I have a digital copy of the 1899 Bible. Um, I really like the way it's laid out. It needs a little work because the verses overlap the lines. But if, if you took, you know, if you didn't let the verses overlap on the line, the, you know, I have to show you what I mean. So um, they have the numbers down the side. One, two... Three, four, five. So these are your, your verses. But verse 1 could end here, and verse 2 would end here and then pick up here. And then verse 3 would pick up here and, and go here. And so, you know, and it may go all the way across, and then verse 4 might go here, and then verse 5 would pick up here and finish here. So the layout is really nice other than that. I don't know why they did that. It's very confusing because when you're trying to read verse 4 you get, or you read verse uh, three, you have to start here and then read verse three. So what I would like to do is keep this layout and make it one, two, three, four, five, but verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, verse five. But in this, it's in a very nice, almost paragraph type layout. It's very easy to read, very comfortable. Um, I, I really like it. I just, it needs a little bit of improvement. So that, that might have been some of the changes they made. This one's also laid out very well. Um, Though it's it's more of a modern layout, it's just like this one, and and so it's it's more of a current modern layout. So, anyways, these are all things that have to be thought about before we print it. You know how we're going to lay it out, what's going to be the orthography, what you know, what are we going to do with with these ideas? All right. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media.
Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast. Thank you.